Well, it's officially Jesus time. Have you noticed the change in the seasons? It even started before Thanksgiving this year. Behind every Christmas decoration, behind every seasonal decoration you might see in your gym, in a a store you walk into, in your church, uh, maybe as you drive along the road, behind all of those seasonal decorations lies in the, eye, in the, in the words of, from Talladega Nights, that six pound, eight ounce baby Jesus. And indeed, you yourselves might put up a crush in your house, or perhaps your neighbors will have a crush in theirs, and as you drive by, you'll see images of little baby Jesus. Uh, all too often, a little white baby Jesus, even though Jesus was a Middle Eastern Palestinian, but that's all right. It is the season of Jesus. And with all these words about Jesus that we hear in the hymns on FM 99.1 or different radio stations, uh, and all the words about Jesus, all the images of Jesus we might see, all the stuff in the season, it behooves us here in the church to think a little bit more deeply about Jesus. Specifically, on December 25th and also on the evening of the 24th, we will celebrate the great festival of the Incarnation, Christmas. And so I would like us to think for the next four weeks a little bit about the incarnation. That miracle where, as the Gospel of John says, God became flesh and lived among us. Now, as your preacher, one of my jobs is to try and encourage within each and every one of you a bit of faith. And so I was, as I was thinking about sermons on the Incarnation, I decided to focus this, these next four sermons on what I call barriers to belief, things that might get in the way of our faith in the Incarnation, of wrapping our heads around what this might mean for ourselves and our lives. And on this, the first Sunday in Advent, I decided to choose a barrier to belief that goes back uh, to the earliest church something that theologians call the scandal of particularity. Scandal of particularity. That is to say, the problem that we run into when we say that God became flesh in one person rather than everybody equally, that God was somehow more manifest in Jesus than other people, and that this particular Jesus was a Jew in Palestine in the first century rather than someone some other place in some other time or in some sort of more universal context. It is the scandal of particularity. Why there? Why in that particular place? And indeed, for a long time, Christians and others have tried to divorce Jesus from that particular context. If you were to turn the clocks back to the second century, you would find, as you read your uh, history of theology books, stories about the great arch-heretic Marcion, who lived in Rome, again, in the mid-second century. And Marcion really liked the message of Jesus. He's like, I like these parables. I like Jesus' message of love. But I don't like a lot of the stuff I find in the Hebrew Bible. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to create my own canon. I'm going to lop off the Old Testament I'm going to only choose one gospel, the gospel of Luke, the gospel of the Gentiles. I'm going to add on a few letters of Paul, and that is going to be my Bible. And the Bible for the followers of Christ as I think they should be, says Marcion. 
He wanted to make Jesus universal for the culture of the Roman Empire. And in order to do that, he had to ditch the Jewish part. That, by the way, according to most scholars, is probably what led to uh, more stringent uh, talk about the formation of the New Testament canon, by the way. What's one thing we like to talk about, the New Testament canon? Well, it usually goes back to Marcion. And indeed, the next century, uh, the, the great church father Origen, as he's arguing for Christianity uh, in, his, uh, in his great dialogue against uh, Celsus, you know, Celsus, one of Celsus's big points is, why do, you, why do you think that God would come down into a random rabbi in a backwater part of the empire? I mean, come on. It's ridiculous. Scandal of particularity bothered people through, uh, right through the 19th century. Uh, Ludwig Feuerbach, a German writer, uh, wrote a famous book, The Essence of Christianity, again, where he tries to boil it down, take it out of its context, and say, what, what really is this belief about? In the 19th century, all of a sudden, people in the Western world started to learn more about other world religions, and that gave more impetus to try and uh, smooth over some of the differences, to make Christianity more universal, to show how Jesus is just like everybody else. Yeah, and try and ditch some of that first century context that makes Jesus so particular. In the 20th century, you see theologians like Rudolf Boltmann with his demythologizing trends, or someone I've mentioned before in church, Karl Rahner, who, uh, in order to try and universalize Jesus, came up with the concept of anonymous Christians, that those who are not Christian could still kind of believe in Jesus because of the universality of Jesus. And indeed, I bet... Some of you don't really like this concept of uh, this particular Jesus. I mean, if if you look at the passage we have for today in Isaiah 2, one of the things it says is that all nations are going to come to the mountain of Zion. It It gets to this idea that the Jews are the chosen people, that God chose one group of people, Israel, and not others. We don't like that. We think God should choose everybody, right? Not just the Israelites. It's a problem. But of course, the fact that Israel is God's chosen people, that leads to uh, this belief, this hope for the Messiah, Jesus. See what I mean, scandal particularity? If we're going to think about the incarnation, we've got to wrap our heads around this. And part of us just wants to ditch it, wants to say, forget about the Jewish Jesus in the first century, let's just make it all about love. But that's not what the gospel tells us. And when we think about it, any revelation of God, at some degree, has to have context. In spite of, I mean, I don't want to bash the Unitarians, but in spite of uh, the uh, sort of emphasis within certain Unitarian Universalism to try and pick out the best sort of greatest hits of different religious faiths and come up with a general ethic of compassion, everything has context. Any revelation of God that you might experience has context. There's no such thing as an objective revelation of God. Everything is subjective. And so any revelation of God that we receive has to have, we have to parse out its particular context whether we like it or not. So yes, we claim that uh, God became flesh in Jesus of Nazareth in the first century. He's a Palestinian Jew in the first century. That's a particular context. But no matter what we want to say about Revelation, we would always have to wrestle with this context. And as contexts go, 
the context of Jesus actually isn't a bad one. Uh, After all, Jesus is a Jew. Judaism is one of the most ancient uh, religious traditions in the globe. So if you're going to pick one, it's actually not a bad one to pick. Not only is it ancient, but it's something, if you look at the Hebrew Bible, it shows a broad range of human experience of the divine. You see within the Hebrew Bible uh, an anthropomorphic God, as in a God that acts like a human being. You see mythology. You see law. You see wisdom teachings. You see prophecy. You see apocalyptic literature. You see historical literature. You see poetry. All within the Hebrew Bible. It's remarkable. Judaism is also uh, perhaps the oldest tradition anywhere in the globe to lift up monotheism, to lift up the concept that, in fact, as opposed to each tribe, each group having their own God, that there's, in fact, one God. This is at the core of Judaism. Judaism is a faith that also lifts up compassion and love. If I'm going to choose a faith in order to have our context of revelation, I think Judaism is a pretty darn good one to start with. And indeed, the first century is a particularly good time within Judaism. At that time, Judaism was no longer linked to any particular nation state in the way that it had been in the past. At that point in Judaism, there were many different sects competing with one another. So the time was ripe for a new sect, a new group, new ideas to come onto the scene. In a couple hundred years, rabbinic Judaism would have become more established and that would have been more difficult. It was an ideal time for something new. And it happened within the context of the Roman Empire. Within the great height of the Pax Romana. This is great. This is, you think about, okay, let's choose a context somewhere. Again, this is a pretty darn good context to choose. Because of the fact that Jesus became, uh, God became flesh in Jesus in the first century, that allowed the message to spread quickly, supposedly according to tradition, within a generation from as far east as India to as far west as Spain. That was only possible because of the Pax Romana. The Christian faith was nurtured in the cities of the Roman Empire. So yeah, so even though we might not like the particularity, having to wrestle with the particularity of the message, we should acknowledge that on some level that's necessary for any revelation. And again, if we're going to pick any context, the context of the first century in Palestine is a pretty darn good one. But I would argue that taking context seriously, taking the scandal of particularity seriously, also enriches our faith. It's one thing to say, love everybody or love one another. It's another thing to sit around a Thanksgiving table with your extended family and have to have a meal with some people you might not like. Then love one another becomes a lot more difficult. Or what about the context of being with someone who might have betrayed you? Then love one another becomes more difficult. Any message worth its salt has meaning only within a particular context. The particularity matters. One thing that's great about the New Testament story of Jesus is that it is so particular. It has such context. The parables of Jesus, the stories of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus have given source material for reinterpretation throughout the last 2,000 years. 
It's like a painting or a poet or, or, or work of poetry. What gives, what gives it lasting power is its ability to provide new meaning for people's lives in different contexts, and that's dependent on its particularity. We rarely preach on Proverbs. They're less interesting for our lives. But somehow the parables seem fresh every time we read them. The particularity matters. In addition, I would say the particularity of Jesus matters. Unlike Muhammad or Moses, Jesus was not a political leader, nor was he a military commander. That says something about the content of our belief. Jesus was not someone who was wealthy or powerful. That says something about the content of our belief. Jesus voluntarily died at age 33. That says something about the content of our belief. That makes us different. That context is different than other contexts. The particularity of Jesus, his particular story, the nature of his message, the Jewish context, all of these things might be a scandal to some, but they are essential to the content of our belief. And then there's the incarnation itself. One of the things that we face as people in the 21st century is a tendency to want to put God as far away as possible. God is too busy to care about us. Or our God uh, is not the type of God that actually cares about creation that much. We, we feel comfortable with a watchmaker type God. God starts things going and then just sort of takes a step back. Or perhaps you're going through something that's difficult and you're saying, oh, well, God's, God doesn't care about my suffering. Why should God? God is, after all, distant and far away. In our scientific world, that's something that we feel very comfortable with. And that's why at this time of year, it's important to reemphasize the incarnation, the particularity of it. Because the basic message of the incarnation is that, yes, God has, in fact, come and experienced what it's like to be human. God chose to become manifest in a human flesh, to walk in human flesh in order to come closer to you and your experience, in order to redeem you. Those tired feet that you might have, those tired feet uh, are the same tired feet that Jesus had as he walked in Palestine. The limitations that you feel in your body, the temptations that you have to wrestle with were temptations that Jesus had to wrestle with back in the first century. The strains on relationships with friends and others are the same strains that Jesus had to experience, the same strains that the incarnation claims that God experienced. The particularity of the incarnation might be a barrier to belief for some, but I would argue that for Christians, it's an essential first step as we consider what the incarnation means for your life. So I encourage you as you approach Advent over the next four weeks to carry this in your mind because we'll keep talking about it. What does the incarnation mean for you? Why does it matter that we say that God became flesh and walked among us? What difference does it make for your faith, for your prayer life, for your relationships with others, for your relationship with God? I would say that as opposed to being a scandal, that there's incredible power in that particularity. And I invite you to consider what that power has for your own particular life.